What's up, friends? This is episode 39 of the Afros and Knives podcast, the interview series featuring Black women working, leading, and innovating in food and beverage, wine, hospitality, food science, food technology, food justice, food education, and food media and agriculture. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and this week I am chatting with Kiani Moju. Keanu is the founder of Jaconi, which is one part creative studio, one part community-based food site, and an educational platform located in Oakland, California. She has a bachelor's degree in communications and rhetorical studies. She also has a master of arts in publishing from the University of Arts London in the UK. Her dissertation for her master's was an examination of the digital evolution of food media into the video-dominated landscape that we all know and love today. Giacconi Studios uh, has partnered with Refinery29, Netflix, and have hosted a number of special events, such as the popular Cooking for the African Diaspora series. Uh, let's see, the YouTube channel launched last summer, and Keanu was on a mission with Giacconi. She is looking to create space to learn about culture through the lens of food. I am so excited about this conversation. I am excited about Keanu and the uh, impact she's having with Jaconi. You know, there is a shift happening. It may be small, it may be slow, but it is indeed happening. And, you know, you will look up and see Jaconi, uh, see Jaconi and Keanu at the front of the line. This episode is brought to you by Global Cutlery USA and the generosity of the Afros and Knives Patreon community. Be sure to become part of the Afros and Knives Collective powered by Mighty Networks. You can sign up for the weekly newsletter on afrosandknives.com. And now let's jump into this chat with Keanu. My name is Keanu Moju and I own a food video production company called Jaconi. There are a lot of I guess, legs, verticals, whatever business term you want to use to describe the business as a whole. We have the production side. So we produce cooking videos, cooking shows. I started my career at TST. So those, you know, hands and pans, overhead videos, made hundreds of those and still continue to do so today, but for a variety of clients. And then we also have our studio space here in Los Angeles. So we rent out, well, I built it, I designed it, which is not typical of most producers, but as a producer, I knew what I needed to do my job well. Um, and I built a space to do that and then realized, oh, other people find this useful too and they'll pay me to use it. So we now rent out our studio location to once again, a breadth of production companies. We have YouTubers coming in here and Oprah Winfrey Network showed, shot like a whole season of a show here. So it's a very mixed bag of who our rental clients are. and then. The final part of Jaconi is our editorial platform, jaconi.co. And that is really me creating space in food media where I kept seeing blockades and walls and barriers and any kind of thing you could see like in one of those old cartoons to like prevent you from getting where you're going. And really, we're still figuring it out. But our goal is to create space for those who are typically in the permission asking role or trying to get their food to be seen and understood and explained and like justify not just themselves, but a whole culture and 
it's a little bit absurd. So with our platform, we just want to give space for people to share what they want as far as like recipes and food, use our skills. So myself and my supervising producer, we both came from, you know, mass media. We can make anything. If it's a cooking show video, we can do it. And we're lending our skills to help the creators bring those visions to life. And I guess the final part is that through doing this project, realizing that a lot of the stories that, you know, we're finding or being told haven't been documented or documented accurately. Maybe they were written by like a person outside of that culture. And so we really want to create space for people not to only have their stories told, but to have an active part in the telling of their own stories and documenting a history that without pen, penning it down could fade with um, as we move. I don't want to say until all the old people die, but that's the base. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like, generation, yeah the generation are, dies and the story dies with them. So Exactly. And so that's kind of another thing of like four cultures that have oral tradition. Yeah. If we don't do that hard work and start nudging and bothering the elders in our family, we have like a great, there's a lot that can be lost if we don't all kind of chip in. That's what I do. Nice. Nice. I mean, you know, like I also like the big thing is like you're, you know, a preserver of history and in the, in the micro, it's like this, I create, <laughs> I produce content for, for food. So it's like, I guess the you know, bit that I didn't put in there, which is funny, as you were saying earlier, what people see is I also host content, but for me, that's like at the bottom of my list is probably what people <laughs> see the most of. I'm like, yeah. oh, you like develop recipes and host cooking shows. I'm like, oh yeah, that too. Nah, um, yeah. Like, I guess I got into that for a little while. Yeah, I did. I did. You know, it's, it's funny because I, of course, now I'm like obsessed with the name thing, but um, looking just do a quick Google search, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, your name is kind of like a big deal. Essentially, it's a masculine African name that means tools of the wizard. It's essentially a, either a Kenyan name or um, a Tanzanian name. So it depends on like how it's spelled. I've seen this tools of the wizard thing, but my mother and I both were like, ah. but I've also, I'm also seeing it means wind in the waves, whirlwind or fresh wind or fresh wind. I like this fresh wind bit though. <laughs> I feel like the wizardry because I'm like a big sci-fi fantasy fan Ooh. of like, if I were to put myself in like old world, I wouldn't want to be like the regular people who are just like fighting for their life. Like I need the mystical powers yes, to get through times. I was like, so if you were an X-Men or something, like what would you want your power to be? And it's like, oh, the tools of the wizard is like the game here though. That would actually yes. really make a really cool like um, graphic novel. And it's mm -hmm. called Tools of the Wizard, but like the the main character is a woman with like these incent these amazing powers that help people build things into the future. That's a whole another conversation, though. I mean, you know, <laughs> we can discuss that at a later time. Because uh, I am a huge like sci fi nerd. Like, you know, I have these I have those things that I watch every year, and like I secretly think my grandmother was, but she never really like had conversations with people about it. She would watch mm -hmm. like she obsessed about um like star. She would watch all iterations of star trek and so like when i lived with her we would sit and we would just watch hours of like star trek the next generation so like she passed in 2007 and so like ever since then once a year i will watch the entire series or binge watch the entire series just to like be connected to her every year so oh yeah it's a good time you said you were named for your grandmother so yeah my grandmother and i share the same name so she's also keanu but my mother's siblings feel uncomfortable calling me keanu because they feel like they're, you know, you're not supposed to say your parents' name. 
So they feel like, can we just like not address you? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, so like, what do you call me then y'all? Like, what are we doing? Oh my gosh. Okay. So did did that mean you ended up with like a lot of nicknames or they just said, Hey, you or look at me and talk to me. Just eye contact. (laughs) That is incredible. (laughs) That is wow. Okay. Um, that's a that's a way to do it. That's a way to do it. Um, yeah, sometimes they'll do if I'm not, but like generally, you're not supposed to call your parents, at least in a lot of African cultures, by their first name. So yeah, it's slight discomfort. But my mom is the eldest of like so many. She eldest of seventeen. So oh wow. Okay. There's a lot of name shuffling around. So I think in general, everyone's getting called the wrong name in the first place. So it's not like a big to do. It's like someone will try to talk to someone and throw out five names before they get it right. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, that it's a awesome. very big family. Now that you say that, it's like every once in a while I'll meet someone and we'll talk about like like early childhood and stuff. And there are certain things that will come up that you have in common. And then you just realize like how many things like black culture, like the, mm-hmm. the people who grew up in it have in common. And so that idea that your mom will call you like all of your siblings names before they get to yours that it's like it's just part of like and I've never like you know with my my European friends and my white friends like I don't that never that rarely happens when I'm like at their houses or around really? their, their families wow. I don't see it like they don't run through the names like that and when I'm at my if I had my black friends though it's like um, um and then it's like they're snapping and there's pointing <laughs> and then everybody else's name and they finally get to yours and you're just like we just yep. had 10 minutes and you ran through 20 names. I don't, what, what's really happening? And at some point it's like, it doesn't matter. They're just kind of like, you know who I'm talking to. Don't, why are you going to make me go Exactly. <laughs> the name is a formality. The name is for other people. Exactly. It's like, so it's not for something. the household. It's not, it's not. Um, did your family have an impact on like what you do now? Or was there like a, like, what was your relationship to like food and like food media coming up? It's like two parts. My family had an impact on my interest in cooking because I'm from California and would spend my summers or every other summer when I was a kid on my grandparents' ranch in Kenya. And I come from old world, super traditional Maasai family. So we're not doing electric. Like we got the ranch, we're on the mountains. And so your entire day to day is around livestock, agriculture. You're just doing food related things around the clock 24 7. And because I, you know, kid in the 90s, there was nothing. They didn't even have those like portable video games that really worked without like a gajillion batteries. So I just would help or so I thought was helping, probably getting in everyone's way. But that's what I did all day. I would help my grandma, you know, sort through the maze for lunch, getting out the little stones and pebbles and things that didn't belong in there, gathering the firewood, putting the stones together to make the fire to cook on. So my passion for cooking came so much from my family. But then I think a directive that is now shown in this chapter of my career also came from them after I was already working for media. I was working at Tasty and my uncle was having a wedding. And at this point, I've already gone through my internal corporate hurdles of let's do more of this, let's do more of that. And being like, how, you know, the roundabout. And so I was like, I'm going to this wedding. I have a really great coworker who works with me now at Jaconi Claire. We were always chatting and I was like, do you want to come to Kenya with me and like come and do that and shoot a video? And she's like, okay. She's, she never had a passport. She's never left the country. And her first thing was come to our mountain in Kenya. So we went, we checked out cameras from the company and we shot a video on Kenyan barbecue. We went to the biggest restaurant 
in Nairobi. And then we showed kind of like the homemade version um, documenting the barbecue we had for the wedding because we were feeding a thousand people. So oh, we wow. had a lot of opportunities to do a lot of takes <laughs> for that. And as we're videotaping, we have the ranch, so we do the whole slaughter, everything on land. As we're filming, one of my uncles came up to me and he said, you know how you are filming this for, you know, your people back in America? You need to come back and make something like this for us. Because you see these young men, you see how there's older men over them telling them what to do. That shouldn't be happening. But because they went away from school for school, it's legally required now. And because they work in the city and they're only home on the weekend, the knowledge that their age group should have, they don't have anymore. And that information lies within my grandparents' generation. And so that was a huge wake-up call because I think as first-generation folks, we're always trying to stay connected to our family's culture. And this gave me a realization that the distance that we're getting as we modernize from culture isn't just for us living in the U.S., Canada, U.K., but folks who live two hours away from the homeland in the continent. It's an issue for them too, for different reasons, yeah. but it's also an issue. And I was like, holy crap, that is and like kind of spiral to what we are trying to do now for Jakani because it's a situation I think that we're all facing, but I don't think we're aware that we're facing until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, that was, that's a great segue. Cause I was like kind of formulating that question while you were talking. Cause I was like, what is it that, like, how are we, a, what, what can we do? What does that look like to take, like those traditions of passing information in that way and how do we modernize it? What's the, you know, how do you digitize something like that for a large number mm -hmm. of people? Cause now that you don't get the benefit of like the one-on-one -on -one. and like, like my grandmother was that person who like I to this day can like visualize her wooden cutting board that was like shaped like a pig. And it was about 13 inches wide. And I was just like, <laughs> how are you managing to prepare a meal on this thing, woman? And then mm -hmm. she had, she used a single knife. She never had a large knife in her space. No matter how many knife blocks you would buy for this woman with a knife in them, she had this little tiny paring knife with a wooden handle. And by the time she passed, it was like the metal on that bad boy was about that big. <laughs> yeah. was, My grandma doesn't even have a cutting board. She, everything is in the hands. It's insane. And it, like to watch them like peel an apple in one shot with just this, you know, little, this little scrap of metal in this wooden handle and, you know, with arthritis in their hands and everything else. And it's just like, it's so you, you know, like a big part of that. And then my, then her, my grandmother's aunt, I lived with her in like 10th grade when I broke my foot and I watched her cook. And it was just like, she grew up, you know, she loved the city. So she was in Philadelphia, she was in Camden and like, that was her life. But when you got her in the kitchen, you could see generations of like Southern cooks mm -hmm. just kind of emerge out of nowhere. And it was just like, okay, so all the Southern ancestors were sitting in her kitchen and nowhere else in her house. And so she would prepare these meals. And again, she's on, at her kitchen table using a plate or, you know, whatever surface she had to prepare greens. And then you'd walk in and her entire kitchen sink was filled with like a, a blend of like mustard and collard. And they were just sitting there soaking, waiting for. And if you wanted to learn how to do what she was doing, you just had to sit in the room. It wasn't mm -hmm. uh, like that idea of having a recipe card and a little box with all the recipes in it. It was like, that's a, it's so rare to like have that. And, you and don't, it's very specific. It's, it's, it's a it's big specific. jump it really if is. it's not in your culture. 
Yeah. If it's not in your family practice, I think our generation, like, you know, even too now with the, you can go down to the, what are they called? Gen Z? Yeah. 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 One of these letters. Yeah. Even for them, it's like only within the population, it's almost like the people who are documenting are people who want a career path it. Yeah. Where that's not how it was before. No. Recipe keeping was for an everyday person thing. It wasn't because you want to be a blogger or a cookbook author. It was just something that we people, at least who have that tradition, did. And the idea of passing on that information was practiced by everyone just in different ways. And somehow it's just like stopped for a lot of people. Or and now we're just seeing people who have career aspirations doing it, where I personally think, it's everybody thing. It's not a just me and my industry friends, like all of us. So what we're doing at Jaconi is, you know, right now, what we can do is we can be there with people and we are actively messaging, calling, just hitting everyone up. But I work in media, I have my master's in publishing and I came to a moment where I was like, wait, there should be an easier, smarter way to do this <laughs> rather than. <laughs> so now I've like my entire past like couple weeks have been chatting with just different people in tech and just figuring how we can make digital tools to make this easier for us to, you know, do it on a bigger scale. Because I think my main thing is it can't be done by one person. And honestly, yeah. if you probably looked like I'm looking at like my culture, my people, and I'm sure if every person looked at their own, they would have the same, oh crap moment too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was like, um, and like recipe recipes, are historical documents. And I think most people don't take that position. And so when we are looking at like kind of this onslaught of recipe websites and cookbooks and magazines and things like that, my least favorite trend right now is this idea of people hopping on social media because apparently it's more democratized than it really should be. But I'm going to keep that opinion to myself. Just because you think it don't mean you need to say it. Let's just put it that way. And so they <laughs> hop on like Twitter or whatever and express their emotions about how they don't like headnotes. They don't want context for a recipe. They want to get on a blog and use the recipe and bypass all the labor of the person who wrote that blog and told you about the recipe, mm. how the recipe entered their life, why the recipe means something to them, why they feel that you should try it. And so they want to bypass that and just, just give me the recipe. Like, why do I have to read all, why do I have to read your life story? And I'm just like, because recipes are about someone's life story. So yes. this this is like my least favorite trend from people right now because they don't understand that recipes are historical documents. And you I would see never... both sides to it though. Just I mean, because some, when it's a bad some of these head notes aren't written in that way. It's this literally like a personal diary entry. There's no context about the dish. It's like literally like here's my week and here's a recipe. Like a recipe, no, 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 yeah. No, no, yeah. No, 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 no. That's not what these spaces are for. I think there maybe this should be like a digital workshop of like what are head notes and what should be in them? Because I don't think if you think of what do we do while they're at their free time? We're watching yeah. stories be told. We're consuming stories, TV, film, books, podcasts. We are a peoples of a species, I guess. I don't like that word, but of st we like <laughs> stories, period. Yeah, it's a human yeah. thing. But yep. like anything, some are good, some are bad. <laughs> and, and, that, think, and that's definitely... A note I will make. I have been on some some sites and I'm just like, oh God, this is tedious to read. What yeah. is going on? When are we going to talk about the food? And yes, yeah. in that point, it's like, I don't need your diary entry and the recipe. I just, let's talk about the recipe if that's what we're here to do. But I don't need to know about like a date you had 
and what happened on that date. And then you slap in the, you know, you kind of patch in the recipe yeah. as an afterthought because that's just, that's equally disrespectful to the recipe. So it's just kind of like, again, if we treat recipes as historical documents, you wouldn't do that. You would talk about the product or you would talk about the ingredient. You talk about the technique, but you, you would not mm-hmm. sit in here and tell me about the last argument you had with your significant other and then slap your like chocolate chip cookie recipe on here. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's why video is really great because yeah. you can layer the two in tandem with one another. Like when we produce my philosophy for producing cooking videos, if you listen to it, audio off, it should be a nice sound, you know, nice thought. Yeah. And if you watch it with sound off, it should be a great instructional video. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to hear the stories while watching cook, cool. But if you just want the recipe, put that thing on mute and get you <laughs> what you, you came for. Yeah, what you um, came for. <laughs> just get what you came for. And so I think I like seeing the small emergence of video, like mm-hmm. in Instagram, all that stuff, because there's different mediums to communicate. That's like what art is for. Not everyone is great at every medium or that's not their best one where they are best communicators. So I think having a different group, like if you are just a writer, you you do that and you do that well. But if you, like for myself, I don't enjoy writing. Video is my thing. Speaking is my thing. So that's my medium. And I think having that space and opportunity for those different folks to do it their way is important especially when we're talking about like i can't put in front of my grandma to be like oh can you write this down but i can videotape her with my own notes and then document that way because that's more true to how i was learned anyway she wasn't handing off recipe cards she is a show and tell so through video we can continue that show and tell but something that we can refer back to or people who don't have that opportunity to go to someone or who are interested can also use that for their exactly. other viewing pleasures the like because I've, I've been consuming a lot of media in the last like year or so because like watching a, a, those huge publishing brands run into some of these challenges that have mm. <laughs> them to have to completely dismantle reconstruct and try again and like watching where media is kind of i I mean, my personal opinion is like, I feel like it's stalling a little bit and especially in the larger with larger brands, it's just kind of like the ability to innovate is just because you're in the process of just trying to like repair and maintain, you don't Mm -hmm. have space for innovation and to take more risks. And so for me, like I envision a world, of course, where like food media takes bigger risks and finds itself in some more of the like unusual spaces. So like, I would love to see a series like, you know, about food, but it's kind of shot like Dr. Who, where you have a time traveler finding themselves back and forth in space and in time, but you, the focus is on like when about food history. So this is my kind of like, what, why write you, it, write it up. <laughs> I, oh write yeah. I have, I've got notes. I've got <laughs> notes and I've got more notes because I'm just like, I feel like food if we can integrate, if we can stop making it feel like kind of an other type of subject where it's cause you can, it's easy to kind of fall into like an elitist conversation around food because it does mm-hmm. have these capitalistic tendencies in the food chain and how food is distributed, at least in this country and, you know, kind of globally as well. But this idea of like food scarcity and food, you know, food apartheid and stuff like that kind of have woven their way into how med- food media is produced and distributed as well. And like not being able to get access to certain things 
is not just in a like mathematical sense or, you know, a reading sense or literary sense, like you don't get access to the library. Your kids, you know, don't get access to certain information because their neighborhoods can't afford the library to stay open. Like outside of that, that food information is kind of placed in that same bucket. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, they're going to grow up learning how to not be able to prepare vegetables because vegetables aren't sold in their neighborhoods because there's no stores in their neighborhoods that sell fresh vegetables. And I think people forget, like, it's not just the access to the product. It's the access to the how-to, like the information and yeah. the tools. Um, I remember there was a, I was a kid when I had this revelation. Like, we used to do a lot of volunteer work at, like, soup kitchens and things like that. And I remember they would do like the food boxes or the food bags for like the homeless and Mm -hmm. the entire box was filled with canned foods. And as a kid, I was like, so how are they opening these cans without like a can opener? There's no way to cook what's in the can because they don't have a kitchen. Mm -hmm. So it was that moment where it was just like, okay, so you've supplied them with this item, but you've given them none of the resources to actually consume it outside like you have, they have no skill set they don't have the instructions they don't have the access to a stove explain to me how giving them a can of food is helping them and so like i've kind of grown up with that like energy around like food information like i was able to as a kid on saturday mornings wake up and like consume anything that pbs was producing around food so i like mm. was watching all of the julia child shows and i was watching jacques papon and i was watching all of that stuff lydia lydia is my oh. like fangirl my pbs fangirl i went to um they have an italy here in la i'm like the biggest italy fangirl oh and God. they were opening the roof deck this is obviously pre-covid and she was there and her PR lady was like, do you want to meet her? And I was yes. like, absolutely not. What am I going to do? I'm not in the mood to look a damn fool. Because I was just like. <laughs> I have no words right now. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'll just stand here in my corner and eat all the free food uh, and just creep from afar. <laughs> I remember when the Italy opened here in New York and a friend of mine was in visiting and she was like, do you want to go to Italy? It's been open for like two days. And I was like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we get in there and of course, like you're immediately hit with like the Nutella wall. And I'm just like, you could come in here and they'd have to like drag you out of here on a stretcher because you've completely consumed too many calories. So we got like the cheese board. We went by and got truffles. Like mm-hmm. it was the insanity of that entire place was incredible. I was just It's like, a playground. It's a playground. It's like, like a museum. Like I, we are one is in a shopping center, outdoor shopping center. So where I have I get my COVID testing. So after that, I'm just like, let's just, let's just swing on by Italy and see what they have. And I'll just take walks in there. I'll get my steps in. Cause I don't like, like, you know, everyone's doing their like COVID neighborhood walks. My neighborhood is not aesthetically pleasing. I live in West Hollywood and there's just too many people. And I'm just like, Oh, I don't want to, but like Italy is still kind of like low key. And so I just like get my steps in in there. I mean, time on Morocco, it's huge. uh, Yeah, I'm like, between Italy and I think the other place I typically would end up walking around is like uh, Williams-Sonoma. I just... Oh, ours are little here. I just, yeah, I just, like, once you get to like the copper cookware and I'm just kind of like there. And most times the poor employees, because they'll roll up and be like, hey, can we help you with anything? And then like 20 minutes later, they're walking away like, I really need to get one of these saute pans. So I've literally sold something back to them. It's pretty wild. For you, and it's probably a, a, a bit of a jump ahead, like how do you envision the future of food media? Like how do you, like what's your kind of like your wildest dream scenario where it's like when if we can get to a place where food content looks like this? It's hard 
because I think food media itself, food for me, can take a lot of notes from the music industry, not the naughty bits. The naughty bits, they can leave those alone. But I'm talking about how the music industry has really taken on technology. Mm. There's so much space in music to, if you're a label artist, you have space, but if you're indie doing on yourself, recording in your bedroom, you can be right there next to that. That is super dope. And I think just as more so, because music is very universal and it's a thing of the people, but not everyone's a musician. So right. I'm like, if they can create such an open marketplace for consumption and sharing of their product, and it's still kind of niche, like I've maybe met two people in life who like don't like listening to music. And I was like, mm, it's so nice to meet you. I think I see my friend over there. Um, but in general, like, okay, some of us, maybe it's like music class, we're all in the school choir, but all of us are eating, cooking, doing something. And so I'm like, if the music industry can, find ways and create space for the people who are in these corporate and the people who are in their bedroom to coexist and for us to have access to it. I think food needs similar mm. minimally to start off with. And it's not like in a one product way, because you have your Spotify, you have your SoundCloud, you have so much space for that, where we have no democratization like maybe youtube but it's not an exclusive it's like everything but like for food it's very much like all our institutions are very majority of them are gatekeepery there's a couple that aren't but they're not pretty looking um but in general i think that's something that we need is ways for us to not be only them to not be the only entities and space for people I think that's what we saw last year when yeah. people felt, you know, together empowered to share their stories. It is that I felt like this institution was my make or break. And I felt like these people were their opportunity gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. We're all cooking. We're all making delicious food. It's like counterintuitive because if you're a company and your job is to share your readers and audience, delicious, whatever, whatever, and surely you'd be doing them a great disservice by like blocking them out of stuff that is good. This is um, true. Yeah. So I think that's just my over, it's not like a pinpoint solution, but I think right. to get to that point where the information is less insular mm. is the future of it because it's just, it doesn't now, make sense. It's too it, public domain to be so tight caps. This is true. Yeah. I love the idea of the independent artist because of the fact that it's like this is it can look a different way like their path does not have to look this way all the time and so to you know kind of see that sensibility mirrored in food media where you have like kind of this sense of like because independent artists are the ones who really are your innovators because they're not necessarily beholden to like a contract with a music producer or a music company or brand where you have to produce a product and it's at a certain pace oh you owe us five albums we, it doesn't matter if they're great or not, but you owe us five albums. So that's the product. And so you've signed mm-hmm. on for this product in this process, whereas independent artists really are moving based on what they feel, what they see, what they know is like resonating with their listeners and that kind of thing. And so to be able to to see that kind of innovation in like food media would be pretty, would be pretty. Now that you frame it up that way too, it also, this is something I've been kind of realizing. I've been on the app. Have you been on Clubhouse? Oh, we talked about 
the iOS I mean, track down an iPhone that I can use to do that. They haven't well, given the uh, Android users the opportunity. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a little bit. It's still early days. I'm sure they'll get there. But yeah. what I'm seeing a lot of in the rooms and conversations that are happening on this app is unlike what you said for the indie musician where you can just do whatever you want and make what you want. We have our indie outsider food media people trying to emulate, not innovate, or like, you know what I mean, like everyone is just trying to move and act and look like the bigger companies. And that's not good. And now we are taking a brief pause to thank Global Cutler USA for sponsoring this episode of the Afros and Knives podcast. Many people have rediscovered their kitchens over the last year, and some have even rekindled their love for cooking. I hope this is a trend that grows up to become the new normal. Cooking at home can be amazing if you come to your cutting board with curiosity and no apologies, if your pantry and your fridge are well stocked, and if you have a sharp, balanced knife at the ready, like an 8-inch Classic Chef knife by Global Cutlery made of Cremova 8 stainless steel, Global Cutlery has been expertly handcrafting knives inspired by the traditions of Japanese sword making and only using the finest raw materials available. They have been doing this work for over 30 years and it shows. The knives are for both the home and the commercial cook and each knife has the signature global edge and it stays sharper longer. And like the samurai swords before them, each knife is carefully weighted to ensure the perfect balance in your hands. So to purchase your own knife and upgrade that knife game, I'm sure after a year you're ready to make a few replacements. Visit the Global Cutlery website, globalcutleryusa.com, or visit your local kitchen supply store like Sir Latab or William Sonoma. Cooking is a practice and a craft, and every practitioner needs the right tools to produce the beautiful results that they want. It is the danger of thinking that that's the only way to succeed. And so you try to duplicate what you think is the formula. And so you do like squash and stifle innovation and like new ideas because the person's so busy trying to fit into the mold of success and not necessarily like create good content. And that's that's what'll happen. It's like they're seeing, oh, yeah. they're just seeing the the outcomes and not necessarily the fact that it's in a system. It's like I remember when I moved to Nashville, and the one thing we would, people would always comment on is like if you were a new a new musician moving to Nashville and you wanted to break through or break out, you had to get yourself inserted into the machine. And so I would hear that phrase a lot, and I'm just like the machine. And you know, I had friends who were like songwriters and producers, and you know, mm-hmm. artists who were actually signed to to labels. And so I didn't understand it until I started to have to go to like showcases and like hear people talking and and that kind of thing. And I now I was like, oh, it's the machine. It's like you insert your kind of authentic self into this machine, and what comes out on the other end is not necessarily you anymore. It's but what pa- what package they put you in in order to sell you to the general yeah. public. And so people try to, what you're doing is you're trying to dismantle the machine a little bit to understand, okay, so how are they producing these results? And it's like, well, <laughs> the results in and of themselves aren't necessarily interesting or talented or successful or useful or valuable to anybody except for mm-hmm. the profit margin. And so once you get past that idea that, oh, they're producing, they're producing things for production's sake because you have a company to like, you know, you have shareholders. 
and you need to make sure there's money flowing in and out. And so you produce things because you know that like volume sometimes is better than value. And so when you become an independent artist, you do have to prioritize value over volume. And a lot of times you just mm-hmm. end up, you, you might have to put out three more songs than maybe the next guy because, hey, you need to make sure that people, that you're in everyone's consciousness, but like you spent years writing those songs and they mean something to you. And so the relationship with what you do is really different than, you know, oh, I have a magazine subscription to this particular magazine, this particular food magazine, and I have like 18 copies I haven't read. but they're getting your coins because you have this yeah. trip. So it doesn't yeah. matter what's on the pages for them. It's just like, well, you bought the magazine. That's really the, the end of the transaction for us. And yeah, so that idea of providing a space where people can actually feel like, like, I mean, I can't wait to get on Clubhouse, honestly, because I've heard things. And I'm something gonna- you said that literally is on my whiteboard for notes, and it was, are we making too much content? That's maybe that's a clubhouse. We get shown on the iOS. We have to talk about this. <laughs> we have to but like really, it's literally back to the idea of, you know, independent people trying to move the same way of these companies. And it's just like, everyone's like, Oh, if you want to blow up, you have to be like, you know, posting every day or two to three times a day. And I'm like, is this with a full-time job? That's not that like, Right. With what? But that's what people are doing, like regular folks. And I'm like, what are the motivations? Is it for likes, follows? Like, what is that translating to? How is this building value, career, like life, happiness, all this stuff? And I think people are just so in a like, do, 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 get numbers, get numbers, get numbers. But I'm like, for like, what is the goal here? Yeah. And it's like, so once you have, and my question always is, so once you have the numbers, how many numbers are enough? And what are you doing with those numbers? Because statistically, if you're running the math, yes, you created a really cool online course, which is kind of the thing that is happening right now. You're producing content at such a high volume to try to sell the course. So now you have 2 million eyes on you and maybe 20,000 people sign up for the course. So what are you doing with the remaining eyeballs? To what end? is Because 20, 20,000 people buying your course one time is not going to be, that's not your financial goal. It's nice, but it's not like you've launched your course, 20,000 people bought it in the first month. Awesome. Now what? So you have all these eyes on you and what kind of value are you giving them? Because essentially this is still transactional. You need to give the people something so they can give you something in return. And I mean, it's an excellent point to think about. Like, are we producing entirely too much content? Because now it's diluted and watered down and value is not. And that we, we, it's really, we've become like the dollar store. we've cheapened ourselves and it's like the publishing schedule i i kind of envy these like there's a couple of folks who you know left these big media companies and now they're doing these like newsletters and they're like here's my one recipe each week four recipes a month i'm like calculating how many videos i've like made in a year like over like a hundred i'm like four a month times what but like to me, that's more normal. Like we're cheapening. I think cookbook, like everything would yeah. do better if it's like once again for music. Yeah, you can put out, but like when Beyonce doesn't drop an album every two seconds, we are really excited when she does because she's not putting out new songs every week. 
And like, and because like you mentioned, you're a kid of the nineties and I was just like, yes, I, you know, I came up through the eighties and the nineties and like, you had to wait for an artist to drop a new record. Like that was just in the anticipation around that. So-and-so was going to put a new one out in the next, in the next year, like you knew there was, there was a season for certain types of music. So you knew like someone was going to drop like that summer single and the world was going to get lit and that was it. And you wouldn't hear from them again for maybe another 18 months. And then the full record would drop. But there was this anticipation around like album releases and videos. I mean, you know, I think the existence of someone like Michael Jackson, part of it was the anticipation of what he was going to do next. A huge part of his like the exchange with an audience was the fact that like Michael Jackson was like, I'm not rushing this process. We're not going to put this out like this. We, you will wait until I drop it. And when you drop it though, like when he dropped it, it was epic. It was legendary. And you're just like mm-hmm. the artists who have sadly like passed on, you know, like your Whitney Houston's and your princes and your Michael Jackson's and all of, you know, your David Bowie's and all of these folks, their, their music will stay in the world. At this point, they would always it will always yeah. be legendary. It will always have a huge impact on music history, but it, they weren't pumping content out every day. No. And so when they did, they, we our attention was like people are putting out amazing content every hour, second of the day. Exactly. I'm just like, especially even the way the platforms are designed with algorithm, unless you're really there at that present moment, are, am I going to see it? And yeah. then also, can I find it later if I missed it? Like the only social media platform that operates like a search engine is youtube because it is google but everything else is like whatever you put on facebook <laughs> finding it it's true i just think we've people are setting ourselves up for trouble like if you think just like even that stuff we were talking about with like what content production looked like in the 90s versus now what are we doing next year in the 10 year this is <sighs> This is my ongoing. This is everyone. This is not even just food. No, it's everyone. I saw someone post a meme in comedy. Comedian 10 years ago made one funny joke, blew up. Now, podcast, skit, this, 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 like 80 credentials, still barely making it. Just, and I think that's where, like, we do have to discuss, like, the value exchange. I'm like, okay, so when you go into a Walmart or a Target and there's a ton of product in there, like what's that experience like? Cause most people think it's great. A lot of people are like, it's entirely overwhelming. I go into the Target and they do one of two things. They either leave in frustration or they buy more than they need and don't use any of it. And it's like this idea of waste, this habit of waste is like finding its way into like non-tangible spaces now like we know we have a waste problem we know there's a ton of plastic in the ocean (laughs) like we understand like there's a physical expression of our attitudes around waste and our habits around waste and now i think they're fine it's finding its way into kind of the non-tangible spaces like there's when i was looking at the statistics for podcasting it was really one of those things like when i started in 2019 i almost just didn't bother I was looking at the landscape and I was like, this is that many podcasts happening in the world. And then to look at the numbers of like podcasts that are abandoned. So there's three episodes and they give up because there's a ton of work behind doing them that nobody told them about to, ex- or nobody told them to expect. And it's like, you're, it's a full-time job you're not getting paid for. And you walk away from it because you're like, I can't sustain this this way. This is crazy. And so when you look at how many podcasts are in the world talking, some of them talking about the same things over and over again, you kind of go like, how many celebrity gossip podcasts can we have? 
how much of this are we going to talk about? And so like the ones that hit big are because they've, you know, they were at either the beginning of something, a beginning of the trend, or they found something new or innovative to like offer to the world. But it's rare that that happens. Like the moments that that pops up is so like few and far and in between. You're like, okay, well, this person came up with something really cool and it's a really cool concept, which is like the reason, the only reason why I like felt confident in doing this podcast is because like I didn't find any other podcast in the space interviewing black women, first of all, in this very specific space. So I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, even if the audience is small, the benefit to the audience is the thing I was looking for. I was like, even if it's just- I am right there with you. Everything we do at Jaconi, I told my team, I was like, hey, we, I don't need to create, I, I come from, everything I've done is in mass media. And as much as I thought it was super cool where I've had videos of have like tens of millions of views. I'm telling you the joy that we got when our YouTube video hit, hit that first hundred was so much higher than my yeah. tens of millions because the care of the content, the meaning and seeing our community members comment being like, Oh my God, I'm so glad I've never seen myself. I've never, I'm, am I seeing yeah. this right? Am I seeing this type of food represented and shot in this way? That is way more like valuable to me yeah. than like the empty numbers or the internet trolls and the bots. And it's so true. Like I, <laughs> and not to, I always hope we not to belabor a point, but like after last year's summer of Black people are great. And I've renamed that that weird anomaly a couple of different ways. Every time I rename it, my sister is like, you're ridiculous. I'm like, no, no. Because last year I was like, oh, Black people are cool again. Like I just, yeah. and we got to that point. And I've, 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 oddly enough, this conversation has shown up in my space over the last week very frequently and talking about how as much as people want to believe that that was in support of the Black community, specifically Black business, it was very traumatic. And I didn't think about how much so until I started getting stories on the other end from like black business owners and specifically people who work in food about how difficult that time period was when all of a sudden the name of your restaurant, food cart, blog or whatever showed up on a list without your consent and you had not been on that blog or posted on that particular Instagram page in three years because no one cared. And now all of a sudden everybody cared. And so you have these huge brands who were like, let's create a list of the people you should follow without doing any research. There was no care or thought involved in those lists. Mm -hmm. It was obvious. And because if you, if you had bothered to do three seconds of research, you realize that that person had abandoned that blog five years ago and there is no new content on that. And now you've created a space of anxiety and labor for this person to go back to this blog and figure out how they can re-engage an audience and kickstart it all over again because your interest is fleeting at best and, and destructive at its worst. And it's just like hearing those stories over and over again of like small businesses who got an onslaught of new customers and they were like, I'm sold out of everything and I don't have the staff to sustain this pace. And then they would suffer the abuses of people in this country who have no idea how to interact in the customer services (laughs) environment. And they would hear the things like, well, I thought you guys wanted to be part of the conversation. And I, you know, well, if you wanted to be, you know, part of the, the, of the capitalist conversation in this country, then you, why don't you have enough product to put out in the world? And why is your shipping taking so long? And see, this is why I don't deal with black businesses. Like it literally created 
this kind of like hellish customer service landscape for so many small businesses that most of them are like, you didn't help me. <laughs> you did not help me. Like you literally like thinking about like even something, even a brand that was kind of on the cusp, like honeypot. And the fact that the owner took so much crap from people, like, cause all, you know, cause honeypot was this black owned business and black women knew about honeypot. They knew about the owner and it was kind of quietly building its brand. And all of a sudden it was in target and it was just, you know, it was on an, it was in a very organic growth pattern, which is what yeah. you want. And then all of a sudden you shove her out in front and you had, now she's dealing with these white women who don't, can't believe that like, oh, well, why are you only talking to the, why is, why are black girls the only ones being talked to in your, in your work? And like when people are, when she's in media, she was talking about being an example to young black women who wanted to start a business. And then she had to catch hell for that. And I was just like, y'all aren't helpful with that. No one asked. No one asked. It, it is weird operating in a different a business in a different scope than what you started. We started building like for me, our editorial platform was to be after our physical studio and production got on its legs so we can self-fund, self-finance and kind of have that like little nice corporate ecosystem internally because I don't really want anybody's money if I don't have to. So that was the goal. But then with COVID, we had a shutdown. The like production was physically, like legally had to stop in LA. And so it jumped in the timeline because I literally like, well, I ain't got a damn thing else to do. So we go make this website. And I sat there for months doing it myself and building our platform and with the full intent, because this is like spring, mm. it was before the, the black summer, the intent of knowing that I'm creating things that my industry peers will give zero dams about. And our work and labor is to go find the people who want who've been wanting this content the same way I've been wanting it and finding those folks, you know, so it's a startup one-on-one, like build the product that you want, that you never saw yourself. Right. That's what I was doing. And then, so just as we like really got going and then the summer happened, everyone's like, tell me about your work. Tell me about this. Tell me about your experience. Tell me about, Oh, you're doing this. I was like, I'm like, um, I'm still figuring it out because it started two months ago. I know my goals and objective with our company. That's very clear to me. I did my whole master's thesis on the rise of digital food media, who the players are, where I think there should be space. And that I got figured out, spent months figuring that out. But for me, it's always about like the how and what are the different ways that we can do this and create space for it. And that through career and experiences become more and more clear. But when last summer happened, we were just like, I just got the website up like a month ago. <laughs> like, what do you and want? you got all these questions <laughs> and all these things where I'm like, I can tell you, I'll tell you whatever I'm telling you now. And then come see me in four months. It'll be a whole different thing. Because that's what thing. startups should be at certain right. stages. You need to have your little lean version to test your hypothesis and then iterate, build, more invest, more invest. And, you know, that's what we're doing. So I'm like, I feel like I'm talking so much about our work at Jaconi before I was ready to, mm. where I'm just like, we're doing it and we're figuring it out because I'm very much like my thoughts need to like be physical. They can't live in my mind and not like a journal, pen, and paper. That's what the master's degree was for. I spent a lot of times thinking, thinking, I spent my whole career thinking about it and now I'm in a doing stage, but it's very much of like, there's only so much you want to show on something when you know it's going to change. Like yeah. I know our website's going to change drastically in the next few months. 
But what we're doing right now, regardless of budget, cost, technology, all that, is we still can start building community of people who see value in what our mission is. Yeah. And how we do that and how that looks and how our platform looks will evolve and change. But I think kind of I'm like, I'm like if we don't talk about this, we're going to talk about the mission. The how, I'll update you later. Yeah. Because that how is going to change. The how is always going to change. Exactly. But the mission is, it's very clear. We need space that sees value in all the foods, not just what will give you the best SEO, what will get you the most views, all that stuff. Honestly, if it's not delicious, keep it off my website. That's all I can say. Like, let it be tasty. (laughs) That's the only qualifications I'm asking for. Please do not waste my groceries with food that is not good. That for me should go on a handful of t-shirts. Please don't waste my groceries if the food isn't going to be good. <laughs> that's all I can that's, that's the, the only thing I can ask for anyway. But everything else, we are it's very clear of like we want to just create space for folks and get out of that traditional pitch request. Honestly, you can't even pitch these food magazines. That thing will go to spam box real quick. Like it's just a wall. And then, like I said earlier, and then people are like, okay, to get in, I got to emulate and then losing their self. And people are adjusting and trying to be like, well, I can like do this, put a little bit of me, but I'm like, this is not what you want. When you get there, you're going to be like, who am I? Yeah. What am I doing? Oh yeah. And it's like, and back to your like example about the music industry, like after spending some time in Nashville during like those like music showcases for like new artists. And, you know, of course the labels are put them together. They want to show everybody this is who's coming up. And I remember getting there, watching the showcases, engaging with the artist, understanding like who they were immediately. Like the minute they hit the stage, you knew exactly what they were about, what they were trying to say. And then in a year or two after watching them get signed (laughs) and seeing them go into the machine and come out on the other side and they did not resemble any of it and you're just like so what happened what happened to the to the people that did the the showcase where are they at like where what what are the huh and you know then eventually you lose yourself you have you you don't see yourself reflected in your own work and it falls apart it's like it's inevitable that it falls apart because you cannot sustain something that isn't authentic eventually it wears thin a hundred percent and you're just like oh i just i don't believe in this anymore and I don't see myself reflected. And so you see these artists like exit their contracts, go back into like an independent space, regain control of their image and their voice. And like now they're producing the content and the, the, the music that they want to produce. And everyone's like, that's not what you were doing when you were on the label. They're like, yeah, well, that's not what I wanted to do on the label. But the label is a company and you have to produce a product. And that's what music, the music business is about, is the production yep. of of music and not necessarily being an artist. And that for me, like that is something that is often reflected in food and specifically in food media is that you get people who start out with these very clear culinary voices and they have a real grasp on their food history, their own personal food history and why they cook what they cook and the way they do it and who's influenced them. And then they get like shoved into the machine. And when you see them come out on the other side and you look at like their cookbook that came out or they, you know, they've written a piece for a major publication and you're just like, this is not the person I was following on YouTube. This is not the person yeah. I was following on Instagram. And they don't even look the same. You're just like, who is this person all of a sudden? And, you know, like that's for me, like that danger of producing too much 
is because authenticity doesn't become a, a central value of what you do anymore because it's not necessary 100%. to sell anything. And I'm just like, but it's also even if you are thinking as being sellable, I, I was doing um, some like social media creeping on Clubhouse. I'll talk about Clubhouse too much. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. But I'm just trying to like, like, find like, it. <laughs> we have our community we're building and I'm always like searching of like, I wonder who's on here because it's, it's in beta mode. So every week someone new is joining. I was just like searching because I have Food Media Club on there. Every club runs differently. When I host a room, I kind of run it like, you know, more panel where because so many people are aspiring fill in the blank in food media. Mm. And I see a lot of rooms of like peer to peer advice. And I'm like, okay, this is great. You can encourage and support one another, but also how do we create a bridge between you guys and the decision makers? Exactly. So I'm everyday creeping. I'm like typing in all the media companies. I'm like, is anyone from this company on here? So I can like <laughs> connect with them and like have them speak on a panel and like introduce them to all these folks yeah. who want to be in that space. And so I just, shot in the dark i was like i wonder if anyone from like martha stewart mag is in here because you know that's a very traditional part of like food yeah. and she's built a whole empire so i just type in the word martha stewart in the search bar and what i saw was so fascinating mm-hmm. one martha stewart is not on it uh just in case anyone was wondering um i didn't see anyone on her team on it either okay but the search result came up a lot of search because people were using her as an adjective to describe themselves. If Martha Stewart was from this, if Martha Stewart meets this, Martha did that. And I'm like, oh. and it's so fascinating to me where I'm like, if you truly see these, you know, everyone has their food icons, whoever they are. And if you see them as so iconic where you are like, is it an adjective adverb? I was an English major, but one of the two, but using them as like a, a defining point for yourself. I'm like, for me, it's like, Yoda Modelenghi is the most modern, I would say, food, like recipe chef, where his name is almost an adjective for a style of cooking. It's gotcha. like Modelenghi way of doing things. And he's talked about it, spoken about it on his podcast. He's like, I feel like sometimes I get challenged, like, is this an Modelenghi way to do things? Like questioning, because yeah. it's such a strong thing. And I'm like, if this is what you aspire to be, how can you do that if you are defining yourself as Bye. a knockoff? Yeah of yeah <laughs> whoever your predecessors were because i think that uniqueness and it, it goes twofold because not just on the aspiring creators of the up and coming it's very much on those people who are in the hiring position of power if you want to build the next martha the next Ina, whatever then you can't go find clones of them no because those people especially they're all alive and well and they're doing their thing so a knockoff is not gonna fulfill anything or get you to that status where these folks can Put out a book. I don't, honestly, the book could be blank and people would still buy it. Hello. And you're not going to get that by trying to push people to be replicas of that. Right. But at the same time, not giving space for someone who couldn't be as unique as those people and have such a strong identity if you suppress their individuality. It's like these two don't add up. They don't. And it's the, that point about like, the instinct, the instinct to copycat, like that's weird, specifically because basic business 101, if you, you know, you're, you essentially are creating solutions to a problem. When you had the rise of Martha and Ina and all those, all those women there, they, you were responding to a problem in the market, specifically in the food media market, where it was a heavy, it was heavy on the misogyny. It was a lot of men 
that were in the space and you saw very few women. And if you did see women in the space, it was very kind of like homemaker, you know, stay at home kind of vibe. And it wasn't this kind of professional respect. Yeah. Even the way they dress, they wear button down shirts and trousers. Like I, like, has Ina ever worn a dress on her show? I, just, I think not. So, like, you were, so you were solving a problem, essentially, for an audience of women who could not see themselves in food media at the time that these women came up. And so basic businesses, you know, you solve a problem and that problem, you, you put a value on that problem, like how much or a price on that problem or the solution. And from that, the audience responds. And so if you're constantly creating duplicates you're not solving a new problem. How does that sustain your profit? How does that create or generate new new profit for you if you're constantly? Co- so again, you have like this dollar store mentality. Well, you can go to the grocery store and get the brand name soap, or you can go to the dollar store and get four bars of the knockoff soap because it's not as good. So you're going to go through it a lot faster, but it's only a dollar. So it's like, or I can Mm -hmm. go to the grocery store and buy like the $3 bar of Dove soap and just get a good quality soap to begin with and not have to spend $6 on six bars of soap that are just, that are 20% as good as the bar of soap I'm going to get in the regular grocery store. So you do have a dollar store mentality. And so in an effort to just get in front of an audience, people go for it. They're like, well, they're going to put me on. And you're just like, but at what cost? Like, what is it going to cost you to get on? As we speak about everything in a very business way, which I love, because right now individuals are essentially businesses. Like yeah. everyone's like, talk about my brand. I'm like, please stop saying brand. You're a business, at least. Like, I don't like it. I don't yeah. like it. It makes me very uncomfortable. But like, like, if you're thinking of that, I think the whole thing is people want to, either co- companies want a sure bet or people want to present themselves as sure bet. And like, yeah. But end of day, in order to win big an investment, you have to take a little bit of risk. But everyone keeps making all these very low risk investments. There you go. <laughs> I just expecting high return. I just be like, because if if anyone you know, like if any listener understands like the terminology in investment, people understand the word unicorn. And the reason why unicorns become what they become is because they are taking the bigger risk. They aren't going to produce a new delivery app so you can get your food from your local restaurant because there's enough Ubers in the space. There's enough Postmates in the Mm -hmm. space. There's enough of those in the space. What you are going to do, however, is you're going to figure out the problem that's currently happening in in the space and go, well, let me create a solution for that, even if it's riskier. Because then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, because Clubhouse essentially will become this unicorn. If you look at the numbers right now and like what they're valued at, one of my favorite stories to follow right now, one of my favorite brands to follow is Calendly. And I didn't realize they were a black owned brand until about six months ago. I love Calendly. They're one of my favorite like calendar management apps, period, hands down. They answered some, they really created solutions that made sense based on like people using like Google calendar and stuff like that for a very long time. The issues that you had with those particular platforms, Calendly really came in and solved a lot of those either by removing them altogether because they were redundant and not necessary or creating Mm -hmm. something on the user side that felt nicer, that felt more luxurious, that felt cleaner. And so looking at like, they recently announced their valuation and like what they've been valued at. And I'm just like, 
holy crap, but they would be considered a unicorn at this point. And that's rare for a, a, a black owned business and B, a piece of tech that everybody uses every day like that. Like you rarely hear Google Calendar come up and go, hey, our valuation for Google Calendar for this particular part of Google is this much money because it's a calendar service. Nobody really gives a crap. They just want the stuff on their calendar and they're not thinking about how it's getting there. And like, so for Calendly to be in the space this way. I'm like, I, you know, I encourage people, if you want to break into any industry, you have to think of yourself as a unicorn, like take the risk to 100%. be a unicorn so people can invest in you in the way they invest in unicorn brands, because these are the ones getting the big dollars. These are the ones getting the attention and the media coverage because they decided to take the risk. And I remember like my interview with Fawn Weaver from uh, Uncle Nearest, that's one of her central values is risk-taking. She was like, my, she said, she said, my level of success is directly linked to my level of risk. And that's just like that one little nugget for me. And like her articulating that I was like, this is the thing I need people to like grasp when it comes to Mm -hmm. personal branding or their own personal selves as a business, (laughs) like what you're doing in food media, what you're trying to do and like breakthrough and all those things. Like if you're like your level of success is going to be directly linked to your level of risk, producing content in a way no one's ever seen, producing, saying things and talking about food in a way that hasn't been talked about yet. And then drawing attention to products and, and ingredients that no one's really using or just in a new way, like use them in a new way. How are we not using it this way yet? Yeah. That's a big thing too. Of Like when we're talking about market appeal, you know, that part of it. What has happened from our bigger companies and being food media, especially travel media, is always looking, presenting international foods as othered, therefore creating distance. Because cooking and food is daily. We do it a few times a day. So the moment you distance something, it becomes an occasion thing. Oh, once in a while, it does, you're not presenting that. So it's like, oh, yeah, I can go Ethiopian. Like, oh, maybe like once a year. You know, I'm like, you know, try to stop me from eating Jared every day. Like my hips will stop me, but that's it. Like there are, it's how you present food is also a big thing for what we're trying to do of like, it's the main thing of like everyone's food is everyday food. But what yeah. the bigger media companies for food and travel have done with international cooking is other it and like, I would say they not geo my people. So it's like, yeah. here we have the Maasai and the warrior. I'm like, do not narrate us like we are the animals on the Sahara. Because okay. unlike the zebra and the lion, and t- like we can talk. Okay. So let's present. It's, it's part of the thing. Like you, everyone is, every culture has their way of hospitality and opening your home and sharing something. Yeah. And I think that is a big thing that we are doing with our video work and for a series. We have our, our main series that we're doing with our community members called My Jikoni, Jikoni Swahili for Kitchen. And so we're giving people opportunity just to share a recipe, but then talk about how it fits in their life in like that normal sense, yes. rather than it being like this creepy or like weird or funky stuff. And then with intentionality to look at our, you know, our, what we call like kind of more universal ingredients, you know, understanding that anywhere on planet earth I go, except for the way tippity top, which I'm never going to, I'm going to find some tomatoes and I'm going to find like all these things, yeah, things that are already in people's pantries or in their local store, regardless of zip code. 
how can we present food and dishes that use those ingredients? So then that way you actually can be like, oh, I buy, for example, we just um, are shooting Kenyan collard greens, skumawiki. It's four ingredients. The greens, spinach, garlic, oil. That's it. But it's a Kenyan dish. So instead of me trying to like go in like traditional, like, okay, what's the weirdest thing I can show people? Right. I can educate them, tell my story, share the stories of all that stuff and share them a cooking skill that they literally probably that night can go apply into their lives. Exactly. Like you probably already have most of these ingredients in your pantry or in your fridge. Or they're around the corner at your local shop. And they're accessible. And it's like, okay, well, I can get that up and going tonight without a tremendous amount of like labor and thought. It's a mixed bag and they all have their place. But I think it it takes a consciousness to be like, if we want to put out international food content that really, at least at the beginning, highlights how we are similar and how we individually can use the same things to create. This is like literally what food competition shows, the biggest part of food media are built around. You all have the same ingredients. Let's have fun and enjoyment and seeing what you each can do with it. Exactly. And like to your point about like creating conversations around like international food where it's like every somewhere, somewhere somebody's eating this every day. It's not because like that kind of that kind of media becomes very voyeuristic and you're just kind of like, oh, okay. But travel media to you. It's exotified. It's just like, yeah, you're sitting somewhere watching a group of people ride their bikes down the street. Do you know how creepy that is? Like you've made this big deal. Like they use bikes here. Oh, okay. even worse when they run up in the villages and go into someone's house, house? Oh, and God. being like, yo, go to Amsterdam and try that. Try I that. Dare you. Like just give it a go. Go just to like, Chicago and try someone. that. <laughs> like, go to Brooklyn and try that. Like go, like, go it's, to and try that. Go in some way go we and- treat other foods and cultures and just say the perspective, voice and tone. Yeah. Like minimally make the shows, shoot them the same way, cinematography, all that stuff, same graphics, the tone, the The perspective, the approach. That's where, when we're talking about representation in front of camera is what we all can see. But I've been on shows and I've been on shows that are more black platforms, but everybody behind that camera was white and the direction and the angling and the formatting and the edited, like there's at least like someone, your creative decision maker you need that back end to be as diverse as possible. You need women's perspectives in there. You need different, especially if the topic is like, you know, black food, your director, your executive producer, your editor, one of those should be, but typically that talent stays in front of the camera. And then everyone who's shaping the story, navigating and molding it. Yeah. Yeah. And I see it. I'm, I'm a studio owner. I've seen a lot of folks walk in here. And I've seen what those behind the camera looks like. And it was really jarring to me because mm. having worked in house, I was used to my company makeup and having a physical studio working, like I said, with people as small as YouTubers all the way down to TV networks. The range, the lack of, they, they all look the same. <laughs> That's basically all I can say. It's, it's the TV network people look the same. The digital influencer marketing people look the same. Every so often, literally pun intended, you'll see a little peppering of someone else in there. But then when you look carefully, it's like, okay, you have a crew of 40 people. All the black people on your crew are the PAs. Got it. Yeah. Like the lowest common denominator or 
you have your culinary department, but your food stylist is white. Your everyone's white. Oh, but your dishwasher is Mexican. Like, like point, like point. This is message received. This is what we're seeing. This is what I'm seeing. Like as a business owner, and so us as a viewer, I think when we're watching these things, we're like, why does this feel off? Yeah, because just because your talent might look a certain way, the people who are shaping and molding that story and presenting that information, yeah are very separate or disconnected or may not have that perspective. I'm not saying like there are some white people who are like, okay, I'm down for this, but generally too, then they would know of like, all right, let me build a nice diverse production team. So then when we're moving through this shaping, creative and post-production process, we have people in the room who have great ideas, suggestions can make sure this show shapes itself in the best way possible. Thank you so much for tuning into my conversation with Kian Moju. To learn more about her work, you can visit kianmoju.com. To see what she's cooking up at Jaconi, you can visit Jaconi Studios. That's J-I-K-O-N-I. Jaconi Studios. Uh, so visit jaconicreative.com. And be sure to follow Jaconi on all the socials. Be sure to follow, subscribe, hit the notification bell, all the things uh, on their YouTube channel, which is so dope. They're doing such incredible high quality cooking content over there. And I just need everybody to know about it. Come back next week and listen in to my chat with the legendary master blender for Appleton Estates. Um, That's Miss Joy Spence. A special shout out to the Afros and Nines Patreon community. Uh, thank you so much for your generous support. And, you know, without you, the show doesn't thrive. As usual, you can head over to the Afros and Knives uh, website, afrosandknives.com, to sign up for the email list, listen to past uh, episodes, buy Afros and Knives merch, and check out all the links and resources in all of the show notes. If you enjoy this uh, series and you want to support the podcast, you can do so so easily by sharing and subscribing, uh, leaving comments for my or for the guest on the Afros and Lives website. Make sure you go and hit up the review and uh, rate on Apple Podcast. All of those things help boost our exposure, which in turn boosts the exposure for all of our guests so the whole world knows how great they are so yeah that's the easiest way to uh to support us at this point if you want to become a patreon if you want to donate you can visit the website and all of those links and all of that detail is located on afrosonize.com see to catch up with me you can follow me on instagram at chef tiffany rosier and then follow me on twitter at tiffany rosier and I do keep a website. It's TiffanyRosier.com. T-I-F-F-A-N-I-R-O-Z-I-E-R. May you be held in loving kindness. May you be happy and safe. May you be healthy in body and in mind. May you live a life of abundance and audacity. May your heart be at peace. And I will see you all next week. <laughs>